Um, so it's my pleasure to introduce to us uh, for today for our DEI lecture, uh, Dustin Kretzinger. So Dr. Kretzinger is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Nebraska. Um, he did all of his training uh, at the University of Iowa, including his pulmonary and critical care training. Um, and I was really excited to invite him here to talk to us today about some of the issues that come with consenting patients for critical care research, especially in the setting of disparities in the healthcare system and issues with race and racism. Um, so, Dr. Kretzinger, thank you so much for joining us today. I look forward to hearing your talk. Uh, thank you very much for the invite. Um, one slight correction to the intro. I actually did my pulmonary critical care fellowship at uh, at Pencil, uh, University of Pennsylvania. Oh, and, sorry about uh, that. No, 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 that's okay. Uh, it actually comes up in the talk a little bit because one of the, uh, one of the historic events actually uh, has a connection there. So uh, I'll uh, refer to that here in just a little bit. So um, again, thank you for the invite. Thanks for everyone who uh, is uh, participating. Uh, hope to have a little bit of time at the end for discussions. Um, but I'm going to talk a little bit about my interest in nudging critical care uh, trial enrollment and the impact um, that historic abuses, present disparities, and systemic racism uh, has on that effort. There we go. Uh, so uh, really no disclosures other than some funding from the NIH, University of Pennsylvania, and Nebraska Medicine. Uh, so learning objectives for today, identify factors unique to critical care trial recruitment that impact enrollment rates, recognize the impact research abuses, present disparities, and systemic racism has on research participation among historically disadvantaged populations, and identify two potential unintended consequences of nudging participation in research. So trial enrollment is slow, and that's especially the case in critical care. Some of the causes unique to critical care include the narrow enrollment window for most of the trials that we conduct. As you can imagine, most of the interventions that we want to evaluate are likely to be most beneficial early in clinical uh, illness. And so we want to uh, enroll patients and start, uh, start these interventional uh, treatments uh, early on. But there's the competing interest of the urgent need for stabilization and treatments uh, that certainly needs to take priority over considerations for research. Further, if you think about your recent uh, ICU uh, patient panel, um, a lot of the patients are intubated or they are delirious and or otherwise unable to make decisions for themselves. And so we rely on surrogate decision makers to make both clinical as well as research uh, decisions on the patient's behalf. Early on uh, in, in illness, sometimes surrogate decision makers are unidentified. This is especially the case among the trauma patient population or emergent surgical population. Sometimes they're unavailable during that narrow window of, of uh, recruitment eligibility. And frankly, a lot of times they're just unable or unwilling to make decisions. These folks are under a tremendous amount of stress. They experience decision fatigue from all the decisions that, they've, uh, that they're faced with. And adding a research enrollment decision on top of all that is often just too much and the easy answer in that situation is to just say no to the optional research thing. Uh, it's the safe decision uh, in their eyes, but that certainly uh, impacts our ability to conduct trials in the ICU. And what are some of the consequences of that? Well, enrolling patients in the trials represent one of the highest costs of uh, conducting a uh, trial. Uh, so a slow enrollment uh, increase the costs. 
Further, it delays the advancement of science and medicine and uh, takes longer to answer the questions. And sometimes the questions go unanswered. Uh, we'll, we'll start a trial and enroll some patients and, and encounter enrollment difficulties and, and maybe to the point where we can't enroll enough patients to, to reach the power we need to answer the, the research question at hand. And so they, uh, the research goes unfinished or unpublished. And that represents both wasted resources for the time of anyone involved in, in that work, as well as wasted financial resources for whoever is funding the work. But I think importantly, it raises ethical concerns. Uh, participants are enrolled with the promise of future benefit of future patients with the knowledge that's obtained from the trial. And uh, they're exposed to some risk of trial participation in exchange for that future potential. But if uh, they're exposed to the risk, but yet we have to stop the trial before we get any meaningful answers, uh, the, they're exposed to the risk without any hope for the benefit. And uh, I, I feel like that's uh, very ethically concerning. So we, I've actually done a little bit of qualitative work in this area, asking family members of critically ill patients after being attempted to be enrolled in a, in a trial uh, what factors influence their decision to enroll or not enroll their loved one. And here are some responses from folks who declined enrollment into the trial. First, I want to have the critical care team have full accountability and responsibility for the decisions with no outside influence. This is actually a common concern that whatever research protocol uh, that we would have in place would bind the hands of the clinical team and that they, the, the patient might not get the care that their trusted doctors felt was most important for them because they were involved in the research trial. So that was a major concern among a lot of surrogates. Another said her health is just too delicate to add another factor to the equation. You know, these folks are sick, and the family members just feel like they're just too sick to participate. I'm not emotionally sound to make this decision presently. My husband is critically ill just representing the stress that they're under and how these optional questions uh, add to that stress. And they just don't feel like they're in the position to, to meaningfully engage in this decision. So how slow is enrollment in critical care trials? So this is the systematic review we uh, recently published, uh, which shows uh, that recent sepsis trials enroll at a rate of under one participant per month per uh, site. And ARDS trials are even worse at less than half a participant per month per site. So critical care trial enrollment is extremely slow. Further, trial participation is reduced among historically disadvantaged populations. In recent neurology uh, trials, black individuals comprised only 1% of recent Alzheimer's disease trials. In cardiovascular trials, they compose only 4% of trial participants, which represents 28% of their expected representation based on the proportion of cardiovascular disease. In oncology, uh, black individuals were enrolled at only 22% of their expected representation based on their proportion of U.S. cancer incidents. And most recently in COVID vaccine trials, black individuals only accounted for 3% of enrollees in COVID-19 vaccine trials, despite being 13% of the U.S. population and about 22% of the COVID mortality. So they're, they're 
excessively burdened uh, by the harms of COVID, but yet underrepresented in our attempts to uh, to uh, improve uh, our odds of survival. Historic research abuses, present disparities in systemic racism and its impact on research participation. So I'm gonna touch on a few uh, historic uh, events and uh, this uh, really does not represent any of my work. This is uh, a summary of some of the work by Harriet Washington uh, and uh, she has a book called Medical Apartheid highly recommend this book. Um, it's, uh, it's uncomfortable to read as a, as a medical provider and researcher, uh, but I think it's something that's really important for us to uh, acknowledge and address. Um, so I highly recommend the book, and the next several slides are uh, heavily, um, heavily use her work. So this is not work of my own. So here's a, a quote about scientific racism from her book. These beliefs were presented as research findings explained by scientific theories and promulgated by whites who were sympathetic to or were actively profiting from the institution of enslavement. So not surprisingly, scientific racism provided medical and scientific justification for slavery. Some of the scientific uh, racist theories were that African or Africans were built to work that because of their ancestry in Africa, that they had a, an extreme heat tolerance, and so they could be put out in the southern fields for extended periods of time, uh, and that was just how, what they were built for, that they had low intellectual capabilities, that they were sexually promiscuous, and this led into this thought that they naturally harbored syphilis and therefore posed a threat to the health of the white population that diseases manifested differently in blacks. And we'll talk about uh, a few instances of, of that uh, racist theory and, uh, and the effects there. And one of the most concerning was that they did not feel pain the same way that white folks did. And so um, that uh, plays into some of the abuses uh, that we'll discuss as well. Physicians in slavery, here's another quote from her book. Enslavement could not have existed and certainly could not have persisted without medical science. However, physicians were also dependent upon slavery, both for economic security and for the enslaved clinical material that fed the American medical research and medical training that bolstered physicians' professional advancement. So physicians' involvement in slavery started right off the bat with the, uh, on the slave ships coming from Africa uh, there were ship surgeons on board who would, who would assess uh, their human cargo for people who they felt uh, may not survive the trip, and they would just throw them overboard. Fitness was assessed by physicians at the auction block. Uh, and again, this is not for their health, uh, but for their assessment for their fitness to work. And then physicians themselves uh, were commonly slave owners uh, for both the, um, the the typical work that that uh, that slaves provided, as well as for uh, subjects for medical experimentation. Another quote from her book: Slaves did not have to be recruited or persuaded to endure pain and indignity; they could not refuse. This is uh, John Brown, who uh, was owned by Dr. Thomas Hamilton of Clinton, Georgia. Uh, 
John Brown uh, escaped captivity and uh, found himself in England, where he told his story of uh, enslavement and uh, was the uh, basis for uh, this book. Um, he was the subject of a lot of experiments by Dr. Hamilton. Um, one of the, the uh, most concerning ones was uh, in Dr. Hamilton's uh, search for heat stroke uh, remedies. Uh, he wanted to get uh, rich by d discovering some therapy for heat stroke, uh, and he would uh, dig a pit and start a fire there and then tamper it down to where there's only embers burning and have John Brown sit naked in the pits covered with a wet blanket. That way all the heat is retained and, and directed into John Brown's body. And he would sit there and have his, his temperature elevated to the points where he would eventually pass out. And Dr. Hamilton tried all kinds of uh, potential remedies to see if any of them would uh, allow uh, John Brown to um, to keep conscious for, for longer periods of time and in an effort to find something to sell. Dr. James Marion Sims, often uh, referred to as the father of gynecology, uh, and his fame was for uh, visigo-vaginal uh, fistula repair techniques. Uh, he perfected these techniques uh, doing uh, surgery on slaves for, for many years. Uh, in fact, one of his slaves endured uh, over 30 surgeries. And uh, going back to that uh, um, racist theory of pain tolerance, uh, he believed that, the, that they didn't feel pain uh, the same way and so did not make any attempts to provide anesthesia even after inhalational ether uh, became available. Clinical material. So uh, another quote from her book. After the mid-19th century, a supply of black bodies was key to the primacy of the hospital as the new center for American medical instruction and treatment. The doctors-to-be and their teachers needed clinical material, human bodies upon which they could practice, diagnose, treat, and finally autopsy and dissect. And below you'll find two advertisements uh, in, uh, from South Carolina in the mid-1800s, uh, looking for both slaves and free black uh, uh, individuals. Um, they would advertise and, and seek uh, slaves that were now too sick to work in the fields and offered a, a way of disposing of them through giving them to the hospital for experimentation and ultimately autopsy. Grave robbery was uh, a common practice and uh, preferentially uh, victimized uh, African-American cemeteries. Uh, here's an article from the Smithsonian uh, specifically about uh, uh, Baltimore uh, medical schools uh, utilizing um, grave robbery uh, as a source of cadavers uh, for their uh, medical schools. Um, but this was far from an isolated event in Baltimore. It was actually quite common uh, throughout the, especially the South and the, and the Northeast. Um, and there was actually a, a trafficking of uh, black bodies from the South to the North. In fact, uh, University of Iowa, where I got my, uh, my medical degree, uh, was receiving cadavers from Tennessee grave robbers as late as in the 1920s. Uh, another quote from her book, 
uh, for blacks, anatomical dissection meant even more. It was an extension of slavery into eternity because it represented a profound level of white control over their bodies, illustrating that they were not free even in death. We'll discuss for a moment uh, Tuskegee, which is probably what comes to, to mind quickest when we start to talk about historical uh, research abuses. Uh, the official study uh, name was the study of syphilis in the untreated Negro male. It was conducted by the U.S. Public Health Service uh, from 1932 to 1972, and it victimized over 600 sharecroppers in Macon County, Georgia, and they were recruited and told that they were going to get treatment for bad blood. But really, the objective was to confirm uh, this racist theory that syphilis manifested differently in blacks than it did whites. And the theory at the time was that tertiary syphilis or neurosyphilis that affected white people did not affect black people uh, because they uh, were thought to have underdeveloped uh, brains and neurologic systems and therefore uh, was immune to the neurologic effects of syphilis but instead had more cardiovascular effects of syphilis. So the objectives of the study really were to, to prove that racist uh, theory. And to do so, uh, what they were really after was uh, autopsy of untreated uh, syphilis patients. And uh, uh, Wegner, one of the senior officers said, as I see it, we have no further interest in these patients until they die. From the onset, Treatment was withheld uh, from uh, the participants. Um, the, the standard of treatment at the time in the early 1930s was uh, various arsenic compounds, which had some effect on syphilis. Uh, instead, they were given mercury, vitamins, and aspirin. Mercury was a historic treatment for syphilis, but had fallen out of favor by this point because it was recognized to be uh, not effective and have uh, significant toxicity. And so it was no longer the standard treatment of the time, but it was the treatment given to the Tuskegee men. They were also given aspirin, which um, actually helped with some of their aches and pains that they experienced from, from being hardworking sharecroppers and actually fed into this, um, uh, you know, this, uh, deception that they were being treated because they would be given the aspirin and, and feel better. But uh, the researchers knew that they had no effect on, on the syphilis that they were actually focused on. And then once penicillin became available and found to be uh, effective therapy, uh, they were actively blocked access to effective therapy. They did this by contacting local doctors and giving the names of the participants to the local doctors and telling them not to provide them treatment. Uh, around this time, many of the sharecroppers uh, ended up being enlisted in the military, and the military had a strong campaign of treating syphilis with penicillin, uh, but the, the names of the participants were given to the military, and uh, they were actively blocked from receiving treatment there. And then uh, the, the same department that ran the study uh, had extensive uh, VD treatment clinics where they were trying to eradicate syphilis uh, but actively blocked uh, these individuals' access to these clinics. Unfortunately, the, the study was no secret. Um, some of the findings were presented at multiple American Medical Association meetings, uh, which were uh, 
segregated and, and excluded African Americans at that time. And autopsies were published in journals. So there was really no secret that this study was going on among the medical community, but it was hidden from uh, the public view in large part, at least until uh, whistleblower Peter Buxton uh, told his friend uh, Gene Heller, uh, who published uh, accounts of the uh, of the study in the New York Times. Uh, Peter Buxton uh, had worked as an interviewer for the study for for several years. Uh, actively campaigned to uh, to his bosses to try to stop the study due to the ethical concerns. Ended up leaving the study. Uh, continued to pressure them to try to stop it. And when his efforts went uh, uh, you know unrewarded, he uh, uh, blew the whistle to the media. And actually, something I wasn't aware of until just recently is is the two tests that we still commonly use. Uh, for syphilis to this day uh, actually has its roots in this Tuskegee experiment. So um, cell cultures weren't uh, available at the time. And so uh, there were some limitations in how we could uh, evaluate syphilis. And these folks had their, their serum uh, and uh, CSF fluid uh, taken on a regular basis. And, and uh, uh, their infected um, fluid was actually used to develop these tests. So some more recent medical uh, abuses, uh, the so-called Mississippi appendectomy was actually relatively common up until the 1970s. This was a situation where an African-American uh, woman would be undergoing surgery for some other reason and uh, would have her uterus removed, uh, leaving her sterile, uh, certainly without her consent and oftentimes without her knowledge uh, until years later. Uh, radiation research during the Cold War era, uh, the government was concerned about uh, uh, exposure of, of soldiers to uh, uh, radiation and, and nuclear um, bombs and such. And so they wanted to, to assess how much uh, radiation someone could be exposed to before having negative effects. And so this led to uh, studies where uh, African-Americans uh, primarily were injected with plutonium without their knowledge to assess the effects that the radiation had on on their bodies, as well as uh, whole body radiation at super therapeutic doses, which, uh, as I'm sure you know, it can induce aplastic anemia and death. Prison experiments were quite common uh, in the 20th century as well, and because of our racist uh, justice system disproportionately affected African-American men. Um, Dr. Albert Klingman, uh, University of Pennsylvania dermatologist, did experiments at the Holmesburg prison, actually became quite wealthy. Uh, he was, um, he uh, did research for about 33 companies, many of which are mainstream ph pharmaceutical and cosmetic uh, companies that you would recognize today, um, conducting experiments on the prisoners, resulting in, in burns and scars and and uh, throughout the 50s through 70s. And just, just a couple months ago, actually, the University of Pennsylvania formally uh, um, uh, apologized for his actions and have, have changed uh, uh, a lecture series that was named uh, in his honor has, has recently changed it. Um, so that was just a few months ago. Uh, Chester Southam uh, from Sloan Kettering, 
uh, injected live cancer cells to over 400 uh, Ohio State prisoners in the 50s. Uh, he said that he wanted to see how the body fought off cancer. Uh, throughout Alabama prisons in the 1960s, uh, scientists and, and physicians experimented on high-volume plasmapheresis um, on the prisoners. Unfortunately, their bad record-keeping and poor sterile technique uh, resulted in many deaths secondary to mismatched blood and, and infections. And then this, uh, this search for causes of violent tendencies in black youth. Again, this, this racist theory that, that uh, black youth are, for, for whatever reason, more violent than, than the youth of other races uh, led to several studies. Um, the discovery of the XYY uh, chromosome pattern in the 70s uh, was thought to uh, predispose people to violence due to the extra maleness or masculinity that they thought would uh, be imposed by the extra Y chromosome. And so there were studies uh, on primarily African-American uh, uh, young men uh, looking for this as a, a marker of future uh, violence. And then flur uh, fenfluramine of fenfenthane uh, was tested on uh, black youth um, in the 1990s. Uh, on what they were doing was looking at the serotonin level changes in response to administration of the medication with the theory that a blunted serotonin response was a predictor of violent tendencies. Um, and I think what, and one thing about that is this was, uh, this medication was not tested at the time uh, prior to that for safety in pediatrics uh, when they were doing these studies. And uh, as I'm sure you're aware, in the mid 1990s, this was pulled due to, uh, due to its cause for pulmonary hypertension and other issues. I think what's most concerning about um, these, these studies is uh, that they almost exclusively were conducted on, um, on black youth. They often identified uh, the uh, participants from their older siblings' involvement, uh, you know, ending up in the juvenile justice system or in prisons, and they looked to their younger siblings as, uh, as research participants to see can they find something that would predict future um, future uh, uh, criminal activity or, or violent tendencies? And as you can imagine, had they found that either of these uh, was associated with violent tendencies, it could have been used as a as a way to mark and label individuals as as future criminals and and all the implications that that could have. Some more modern disparities. Uh, so these studies are, are actually just being developed over the last couple of years. Uh, Dr. Ashana uh, from Duke, I believe she might be speaking to you guys actually in the next couple months. Uh, so she recently looked at the uh, accuracy of mortality prediction in SOFA uh, and LAPS2 scores uh, based on race and found that particularly SOFA scores uh, overrepresented uh, or overpredicted uh, mortality in African Americans, and that becomes especially important when there's talk of using SOFA scores as a uh, triage instrument um, in recent discussions for crisis standards of care uh, surrounding uh, the COVID pandemic. So, um, if SOFA is used as a 
to predict mortality uh, in this setting, uh, African Americans would be disadvantaged in this situation and could be denied uh, care because they are deemed too sick to uh, be saved. Dr. Amaka Inya is a nephrologist at Penn, um, and she's been looking at the uh, use of race in estimating kidney function. Uh, oftentimes, uh, you'll look at your lab results and you'll see two estimated GFRs, one for African Americans and one for uh, Caucasians. And um, she has found that this this system of, of using race in the uh, estimated GFR uh, systematically biases against African Americans. It actually under underrepresents uh, their severity of illness, and that becomes really important when you consider that that is part of the calculation in um, in determining kidney uh, allocations and uh, transplantation. So. Uh, this use of race and estimated kidney function systematically biases against African Americans in their pursuit of uh, obtaining kidneys. And then uh, Michael Sorgen of uh, uh, Michigan uh, recently published uh, his findings on racial bias and pulse oximetry, uh, looking at the uh, pulse oximetry readings in African Americans and uh, in Caucasians and comparing it to arterial oxygen saturations and finding that uh, that there's quite a, a bit of inaccuracy among the African American population. All right, so um, this may feel like a big shift uh, here, so I just want to acknowledge that. So we've talked a bit about um, systemic racism and historic abuses and present disparities. Uh, I just want to shift back to um, what my research focus is and how I incorporate um, these findings and the situation into my research and how I make, uh, how I want to make sure that I'm mindful of it uh, in my research. So my, my interest is how do we encourage research participation across the board, um, uh, not necessarily specifically among minority patients, although uh, recognizing that they are underrepresented in, in many trials. I, I really want to encourage critical care trial participation uh, among everybody. And one of the tools that I'm looking at using is uh, behavioral economic nudges. So. Behavioral economics is a relatively new field of study, which combines psychology and economics in a way to better understand how people make decisions and how decisions can be uh, can be framed in a way uh, to influence their their decisions. So here's one definition, actually from the PED nudge unit: a nudge is a change in the way choices are presented or information is framed that alters people's behavior in a predictable way without restricting choice. I think that's the most important thing to keep in mind when it comes to nudges. The full complement of choices remains on the table. So can't restrict choice, otherwise it's no longer a nudge. Some of the ways that, that nudges can uh, influence uh, behavior, providing information on social norms, so if you tell people uh, what other people are doing or what other people approve of, that can uh, affect their decision. Uh, duty of reciprocity. 
So if an individual is benefiting from someone else's work, they may feel a duty to, uh, to engage in that work as well, to pay it forward to other people. Uh, defaults is probably the strongest nudge. Uh, and in research participation, this would take the form of either a waiver of consent or an opt-out system where the default is participating in the study. And if nothing is done, they're automatically enrolled. But again, choices are not restricted. They are given, they are informed that without any action, uh, they will be automatically enrolled in the study and given simple ways to opt out. And that's the key. It can't be uh, a, a lot of effort in order to avoid participation. Uh, but if nothing is done, the default is to participate. Providing some social recognition uh, for participation. The way you frame decisions can impact it. Uh, we know that, uh, that folks uh, feel losses more than they feel uh, gains. And so framing different decisions, focusing on loss aversion can influence or sway someone's decision. Active choice, uh, anyone who works with Epic will experience this probably on a daily basis. This is the pop-up where you have to uh, make a decision, you have to make an action in order to proceed. So active choice is a, is a forced decision. Uh, it doesn't force which decision is made, but it forces a decision has to be made. Enhanced active choice tries to nudge the decision maybe by highlighting the benefits of one decision and highlighting the, the consequences of the opposite decision. How you structure decision flow can impact decisions. So uh, the foot in the door nudge is uh, people are more likely to say yes to a small request and then are more likely to say yes to a larger request after saying yes to a, a small request. And then self-prophecy is the idea that that people will say uh, yes to a hypothetical situation. This is actually studied in, in blood donation where uh, people were randomized to receive a survey or not. Uh, and those who received the survey and uh, asking about their willingness to, to donate blood uh, afterwards, those that received the survey, once they encountered an actual opportunity to donate blood, donated at much higher rates than those who just weren't even asked the question to begin with. And then, of course, financial payments is a, is a form of nudging, and you can alter the way the financial payments are administered in a way to get outsized value for, for the nudge, such as using lottery payments. So here's my uh, conceptual model of uh, enrollment decisions in the ICU uh, by surrogate decision makers. So the first, uh, the first quadrant there, ideally, uh, surrogate decision makers would weigh the risks and benefits and make a decision to enroll or to decline enrollment into a trial. However, the, se the second uh, um, quadrant there shows that we know that in the ICU, uncertainty of patient outcomes, status quo bias, decision fatigue, anticipated regrets, systematically bias away from participating in uh, research. So the hope would be that through the use of various uh, uh, nudges that we could rebalance the scale. However, we have to be mindful that the nudges aren't so strong 
that they diminish the perception of risk and and uh, and default and uh, and sway the the scales too much uh, towards enrollment. So again, we have to be cautious uh, and monitor for undue and unjust inducement or nudging. That's uh, most relevant, I think, with uh, payments. And we'll, we'll talk about um, a way to look at undue and unjust inducement here. So uh, one of my mentors, Scott Halpern, actually conducted this study a while back uh, where he recruited hypertensive patients, and he gave them nine different trials to consider enrolling in. And the trials were uh, random, had random variables in them that varied the payment amounts offered for different uh, trials and varied the risks that the participant could uh, expect uh, to experience. And so these are all hypothetical trials uh, that the participants were asked to say whether or not they would uh, participate. So what is undue inducement? So um, as you can imagine, naturally, willingness to participate will decrease as risk increases. And in the face of some financial payment, at any given risk, someone's willingness to participate is likely to be higher. Now, this is a natural uh, trade-off uh, between uh, being, uh, risk and payment um, and uh, reflects people's um, compensation for the risk that they're uh, willingly being exposed to. And I actually feel like this is um, a very ethically sound thing. I think that people who voluntarily expose themselves to risk for the benefit of other people should be compensated. However, we have to be cautious uh, and monitor for undue inducement. And what that would look like is if in the face of financial compensation, the assessment of risk is blunted. This is, in, in other words, um, their, their willingness to participate may decrease, but not nearly to the effect that it would have uh, absence payment. And statistically, this is measured by an interaction uh, between payment and risk and represents, again, a blunting of the risk evaluation, which we uh, consider undue inducement. Uh, Dr. Halpern looked uh, for this in his study. And as you can see, as expected, um, willingness to participate decreased as the risks increased. Uh, but across the, and, and that uh, in the setting of payment, willingness uh, was increased at any given uh, level of risk. Um, but they all have a pretty similar slope. So it doesn't seem like in the face of payments uh, that uh, individuals are blinded to the risk. And so he found no evidence of undue inducement in this particular study. What is unjust inducement? So you can imagine as payment increases that people's willingness to participate will increase as well. And just as a, as a baseline, we'll use high income individuals here. And you could imagine low income individuals, uh, you know, I could make a rational case that they might be more willing to participate in the, in the setting of uh, financial compensation. I could also make a, a rational case that they might be less 
likely to participate in the setting of financial compensation. But I think it would be concerning if in the setting of financial compensation uh, that they were more strongly uh, influenced than those of uh, higher income status. So, um, what, again, what this would look like would be an interaction between payment and income and would represent lower income patients preferentially influenced by money. And in his study, uh, he found, uh, as expected, that, uh, that willingness to participate increased as payment increased. Um, and it was actually lower among uh, less well-off individuals. Um, but uh, as you can see, if anything, um, the increase was actually uh, less of an increase at the higher payments among the poor. And this is actually the opposite of what we would be concerned for. So uh, again, no finding of evidence of undue inducement in this particular study. And so um, I actually wanted to evaluate a non-financial nudge to see if we could increase enrollment in critical care trials. And this is a, uh, a novel um, survey that I put together that uh, incorporated several nudges. So uh, just asking to to fill out a survey, uh, a small ask before asking about uh, trial participation served as a foot in the door nudge. They were then asked five questions, such as my loved one would uh, give directions to someone they didn't know, my loved one would give money to charity, etc. Framed the discussion in, in, in the subject of altruism and then also um, uh, put in their mind that their, their loved one is a giving person. Interestingly, not everyone felt like their loved one was a very altruistic person. It was interesting uh, conducting the survey and, and seeing how many people go, oh, no, he, he would never do that. Um, after those questions, there was a statement uh, that says many treatments that are in use today to improve the care of uh, critically ill were found to be affected, uh, effective through uh, many other patients' participation in research trials. This does a couple of things. One, it, it introduces uh, potential duty of reciprocity. My loved one is benefiting from knowledge obtained from other people's participation in trials. Maybe they should participate to, to pay it forward. Also introduces that it's a social norm to, to, to participate in uh, trials while uh, in the ICU. And then lastly, they were asked to answer the hypothetical question, my loved one would participate in a clinical trial if it was low risk to them and the knowledge obtained might help future patients. And again, this uh, uh, people are more likely to say yes to a hypothetical question when the risk is essentially zero. Um, and yet they're more likely to say yes if uh, they are, uh, if they encounter that, that question uh, in a real life scenario uh, later down the road. So in my trial, I approached 182 surrogate decision makers of critically ill patients, and they were randomized to either take this nudge survey or just go right into a uh, 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 standard consent process. And there was no trial enrolling in the population at high enough numbers uh, at the time for me to partner with. And so uh, we developed a sham ventilator weaning trial that we would uh, tell them that, uh, ask them to enroll in. Uh, throughout the course uh, of this, uh, they were under the impression 
that they uh, were actually being asked to enroll in a ventilator weaning trial. We got their decision. We asked them uh, to uh, some risk assessment and demographic questions. And then we, um, I debriefed with them that uh, the ventilator weaning trial isn't actually something that we're doing at that time. But the real nature of this study was to understand um, how people make research decisions and how uh, we can encourage participation. And the outcome was enrollment rate. Uh, demographics from the study, uh, the patients were primarily male while the surrogates were pri primarily female. About three quarters white, uh, small Hispanic uh, population, about three quarters with at least some college uh, education. And uh, most commonly the surrogates uh, that were approached was a spouse. And the outcome, as you can see, uh, the nudge did not increase enrollment into uh, the into the sham trial. So uh, null study didn't work. Um, but it, it illustrates some uh, examples of uh, how we can assess for uh, undue nudging. So undue inducement. The inducement I feel is more uh, applicable to financial payments, um, but undue nudging. Is this uh, is is a similar effect? So uh, this ventilator weaning trial is presented the same to each uh, each surrogate, and so the risks are the same. Uh, but as you can imagine, individuals can perceive the risk differently. And so uh, here's just like a baseline with no nudge. The risk perception of you know 182 individuals is going to be some you know bell-shaped distribution. Uh, a concern might be if a nudge decreased their perception of risk or blunted their risk evaluation. I would consider this an undue nudge, and I would say that this would be concerning. I would not want to implement a nudge uh, that, that altered their perception of risk. So we actually monitored for that. We assessed risk in two different ways, first on a seven-point Likert scale, and then another way on a comparative riskiness scale where they were asked, uh, would participation in this trial be more risky than a variety of, of different activities with various risks that they probably have thought more about than research participation? Um, and the result, as you can see, uh, regardless of whether or not we looked at the Likert scale or the comparative riskiness scale, their perception of risk in both arms was nearly identical. So, no evidence of undue nudging in this study. Um, model of unjust nudging. So as you can imagine, if the nudge works, uh, it's going to increase willingness to participate at some baseline. And I would hope that there wouldn't be any difference between um, high-income and low-income individuals for a non-financial nudge. I can see why there might be some uh, logical reasons in a financial nudge for them to be different, uh, but I would actually be concerned if uh, there was uh, disproportionate um, influence of the nudge by lower income individuals. And again, this would be an interaction between nudge and income. We, we tried to look uh, in our study for this as well. Uh, there are some limitations. We did not collect income data. We actually felt like that was a little bit too invasive. We did ask about education, um, which is often a surrogate for socioeconomic status. Uh, and overall, our numbers were just underpowered to really evaluate this. 
and the intervention didn't work, so it's really unlikely that we're going to see an interaction between nudge and education level. But we did we did uh, check it, and uh, as you can see, a very wide confidence interval uh, representing uh, being pretty underpowered. Um, but I think future studies that are uh, have higher power, uh, it will be important to uh, monitor for this. In conclusion, uh, trial enrollment is slow, especially in critically uh, in critical care trials. Trial participation is reduced among historically disadvantaged populations. History of race-based research abuses, present disparities, and systemic racism impact research participation. Nudging may encourage participation, uh, but we need to be cautious and monitor for undue and unjust inducement and nudging. And that's it. Looks like we have maybe a little bit of time for some questions. Let's see if I can stop sharing my screen here.